Well, good morning. It's lovely to be here. Uh, for those who don't know me, my name is Adam Richards. I'm married to Trudy. I have four beautiful children uh, who my wife has taken to church this morning and who are very tired and were very grumpy this morning. So it's a pleasure to be here amongst you all. Uh, I am going to be preaching on God's glory. It's great joy to preach on this and a very important topic. So will you pray with me before we hear from our glorious God? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the great blessings it is uh, to be gathered here with your people. We thank you that you have given us your word and that through your word we know you. We pray, Father, as we come to the end of this series on the Reformation solas, on the Reformation alones, that you will teach us what it means to glorify you alone. Help us to understand Jesus Christ and his loving, humble self-sacrifice and how that glorifies you and how we are to live in light of that glory. And we ask this in the name of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. When I was younger, uh, I lived in London for three years. It's actually the place where I became a Christian was living in London. And while I was in London, uh, there were a few World Cups uh, taking place at the time. They were the Rugby World Cup and the Cricket World Cup. And they were both being played in England. And at that time, Australia dominated those particular sports. So it was a great time to be in England, as Australia was just about winning everything. It seemed that Australian sport would sweep the world. It was so dominant. We even won the Bledisloe Cup, for those who are interested, three times at the time. Australians living in London were very proud to be Australian. We were all very proud to be Australian at the time. We were all wearing uh, bright golden jerseys, you know, not canary yellow, but bright gold jerseys. Everywhere you looked in London, everyone was wearing these bright gold jerseys and we wore them with pride. And the reason was, as an expat living in England, we were proud to be Australian. We were proud to put on that jersey and say, look, we won. We won everything. We are Australians. And not only were we proud, we gloried in their victories. Their glory was our glory. It didn't matter whether you could throw a ball, kick a ball, hit a ball. It didn't matter if you... I couldn't, you know, I couldn't throw a ball from here to the, to the kids' church. But I was the best cricketer in the world at the time. Why? Because Australia won. Their glory was our glory. And everyone looked at us and we were, we were just beaming with pride because of our teams. As we look at this passage and as we think about what does it mean to glorify God, what we're trying to think about is what is it that makes us proud to be Christians? What is it that actually exemplifies and glorifies uh, our God, what shows his glory? One of the questions I'm always fascinated asking with, amongst the students at university is, what does it mean to glorify God? How should you live? And they all go, oh, we should live our lives to the glory of God. And I go, that's fantastic. What does that mean? And they all go, uh, we should glorify God. And they have no idea. 
And that's actually one of those strange things. When you're talking about glorifying God, what do you mean? What does it mean to glorify God? Everybody says we should live for God's glory alone. As Christians, we believe that. But what does that actually mean? And I've been using and thinking about a working definition. And what does it mean to glorify somebody is to actually extol the virtue or character of a person or thing that most exemplifies what is great about them, that most shows what is wonderful, what is special, what is particular to them. So when you're talking about the Australian cricket team, what is their glory? Their glory is their ability to hit a ball or throw a ball down a cricket pitch at an exceptionally good, uh, to a really good ability. They can do it better than others. When you're talking about the Wallabies and what is their glory, we're still thinking about that one, (laughs) but that's what it means to glorify something, to extol the ability or characteristic of something that shows just how great, just how special, just how wonderful that person is. So when you're talking about, and when we're talking about God's glory alone, what we're going to be looking at, what characteristic, what uh, ability or what uh, object about God is most glorified? What shows him to be the most great and wonderful person that he is? Uh, And that is really important because, as I said, as Christians, we want to glorify God. But not only should we do that as Christians, God says that. In Isaiah, he says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. As Christians, we need to listen to what our God is saying. He's saying, I'm not going to yield my glory to another thing. I am not going to show my glory in another place. I will glorify myself and as Christians, we need to glorify God where he shows his glory. And so as we look at this passage and as we look and think about God's glory this morning, we need to think about, okay, where does God and where is God most glorified? Where does he show this wonderful attribute or characteristic? And in one sense, uh, the Bible's very clear. All creation shows the glory of God. So we read in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. That passage points at the the reality, all creation glorifies God. But even though that is true, and I'm not denying that for a second, the Bible goes on and says, actually, there is a specific point where God is most glorified. There is a specific place where God shows his glory to be. And he shows it as he manifests himself in the Old Testament, and which where we'll go and where he points to eventually. So where does he start in the Old Testament? He actually first appears in his glory in the Old Testament when he actually reveals himself to Israel. And he does this just after he saves Israel from Egypt. Now, just putting us all on the same page, what happens in the Old Testament is that Israel is found in captivity in Egypt and God says to Israel, I will save you, I will deliver you. He sends Moses down. Moses actually declares to Pharaoh, hey, let the Israelites go. If you don't let them go, I'm going to judge you. And Pharaoh says, I don't know your God. You can do what you want, Moses. And Moses says, well, bad luck. God is going to free them. And God judges Egypt. And in judging Egypt, God delivers Israel. God saves Israel. 
And after he saves Israel and takes them out of Egypt, he then appears to Israel in, the, in a cloud. And it is through the cloud that God leads Israel through the wilderness. And that cloud is called the glory cloud. And we read in Exodus this, When Moses went up on the mountain, that's Mount Sinai, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the, gla- the cloud covered the mountain. On the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went up on the mountain and he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Here we see the cloud of uh, the glory cloud come down on Mount Sinai and the, glory, uh, and the cloud shields the glory of God from the Israelites. But they know that God is there and they know his glory is there, but it is shielded. And we learn two things from this glory cloud. And that's why I'm bringing up. The first is that actually the cloud is actually covering up the glory of God. It is not revealing the glory of God. It is hiding it. They know where it is. They know it is there, but they can't see what God's glory is. And this is forcing the Israelites to wonder, what is God's glory? We know it's there. We can see that God's glory is just there, but we can't see actually what it is. And so it forces them to think through, okay, what could that glory be? It's not the cloud. We know it's being hidden in the cloud, but we need to look for the place where God will reveal it. And the second thing we learn from the glory cloud is after, after this Mount Sinai period, what God does is he leads the Israelites through the wilderness. And the glory cloud goes before them. And what he's actually saying to the Israelites here through doing this is, you need to follow me and look for the place where I will finally reveal my glory to you. It forces the Israelites to be constantly searching. Where is the place that God will reveal his glory? Where is the final resting place where God will say to us, here is God's glory, here is the thing that most magnifies, most glorifies me. And what God does to Moses is he actually gives him a a foretaste of what that will be. Because Moses says to God, God, I want to see your glory. I want to know your glory. Show me your glory. And God says, I will do that. And he does, uh, he does exactly that to Moses. And in his doing, he actually points to the place where he will be glorified. And we read this in Exodus, and this is in Exodus 34. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets. This is after Israel's rebelled against our God. So Moses chose two stone tablets like the first ones and went up on Mount Sinai early in the morning. As the Lord had commanded him, and he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed this name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. What God is doing when he is speaking to Moses here is he is pointing to the place where his glory will be revealed. And his place where his glory will be revealed is at the place 
where God's mercy and compassion meet his justice and his wrath. Now, jumping through the rest of the Bible very quickly, we all should know where that place is. The place where God's mercy and justice meet is the, is the cross. The cross is the place where God is saying, I will glorify myself. That is the place of my glory. About two years ago, I was uh, doing 1 Corinthians on Canthus. And as I was preparing those Bible studies, I came across this verse. Uh, This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I remember looking at that verse and thinking, wow, that is a wonderful verse. That is a great verse. That is a verse to live by. That is a verse to shape your whole life around. And I sat there and I thought about that verse. And the more I thought about it, the more I realised this. I had no idea what that verse meant. I sat there and I thought, what does it mean to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified? Does it mean one plus one equals Jesus Christ? I just didn't really understand it. And so I kept on thinking about it and praying about it for a week. And as I thought about it, God slowly, slowly revealed his answer to me. And I thought about it by looking at the name. Who is Jesus? Jesus is God. He is the God of all creation. His words, he spoke and he created everything. Everything you see, all the stars flung into space, the magnificence of this creation. Everything you see, I've just driven from down to Melbourne and back. And you look at the countryside, it is magnificent. It is beautiful and God made it all and he made it with his word. His word is powerful, majestic. It makes so many wonderful things. And when you look at Jesus, you've got to go, he is God. He did this. But what is magnificent about Jesus? Yes, the creation, but this is what's really magnificent about Jesus, that he humbled himself took on the form of a servant and lived amongst wicked people. See, the thing that is majorly powerful about Jesus is his humility. This great God who is able to do whatever he wants, who has all the power in the universe, took on the form of a servant and lived amongst sinful people like you and me. If you want to know the glory of God, look at Jesus. But not only did he do that, not only did he humble himself and live amongst wicked people like you and I, he then went on a Roman cross and died one of the most horrible deaths that have ever been men has inflicted upon another man. He died a bloody, cursed death for the sake of people who would reject him. As I looked and thought about what does it mean to know Jesus Christ and him crucified, I actually thought it is to know Humble self-sacrifice. 
That is the glory of God. It's not in power. It's not in success. It's not in abilities. God has all of that, yet he humbled himself, dwelt amongst people who would hate him and reject him, and he died for them so that he could be in relationship with them. For I resolved to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is what glorifies God the most. It is the cross. It is the humble, self-sacrificial death of the Son of God to die for a people who are living in rebellion. And that's what Philippians 2 is saying. I'm just going to read from verse 5 again. In your relationships with one another, have the mindset of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used by his, to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. If you want to know the glory of God, if you want to see the glory of God, look at the cross. That is where God is glorified. Christians look at the cross and they see the power and majesty of God to save sinners. Those who would reject and who would rebel and who have constantly lived in rebellion to God. He loves us so much that he died for us. You would not choose God by your own volition. God loves you that he sent his son to die for you so that he could choose you and make you his very own. That is the love of God. That is the glory of God. And when you see that, you can actually understand what uh, God meant when he speaks through the prophet Isaiah. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. He will not be glorified in exalting success or power, or money, or strength, or career. His glory is found in humble, self-sacrificial death for the sake of others. Given that, given we know that's what God and how God will glorify himself, as Christians, as his people, how do we live in light of that glory? I'm always amazed when I go down to the city at night. I love going down to the city at night. Don't do it very often anymore. Four children, you know what it's like. Uh, and I go down to the city at night and I walk along the water at Darling Harbour. And as you walk along the water and you look over the buildings, there is a particular beauty to it. I, I, I really love the view. But as I look at that view and I look at all the buildings, up the cross on top of the buildings, you see all those names and all those logos. And they always amaze me. I always think, wow, look at all those names. 
And as I think about it and reflect upon it, I go, oh, there is man up to his old trick again. What do I mean? When I look at those names, I think of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. And this is what they said in Genesis 11. Then they said, come, let us make, build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole world. As I look at those buildings and look at all those logos plastered on top of those buildings, I go, look at man. Here's my name. Here's my glory. Here's my greatness. Glorify me. And I realise this is man up to his old trick. I will be glorified. I will be great. I will make a name for myself. And that is the world we live in. It is a world that seeks to glorify itself. It is a world that says, I am the most important. Glorify me. It says you should spend, you should enjoy, you should be pleased. Don't let anybody hold you back from your dreams. You deserve it. We live in a world that absolutely loves to glorify itself. The world in its vanity, even though it is a wash, and it is a wash in the glory of God, still looks upon itself. It still navel gazes and says, look at me, look how great I am. Glorify me. And as I go to the university, and as I gave this talk to the university students, they were all going, yes, yes, I would never do that. I would never glorify myself. I'm so great. I'm so wonderful. I'd never do that. And then I asked them this question. What do you post on Facebook? <laughs> it was really funny when I asked them that question. It was like stunned mullets or deer in front of their headlights. They were like, <gasps> but it's the truth. Look at Facebook. What do you think the like button is? It might as well be relabeled glorify me for a lot of cases because that's what it is. I remember... Just before I gave this talk originally, I was listening to um, some talk and there was a girl uh, in America and she was using Facebook and what she did is she'd send a message to somebody on Facebook and um, when she'd sent this message, she didn't get a reply within 24 hours. So what she did is she defriended the person. How dare you not acknowledge me or get back to me? Now, if, you, if I was treated like that and the way I use Facebook, I'd have no more friends left on Facebook, how bad I am. But the question is, as you use social media, how do you use it? Do you use it? What are you posting? Is it about your latest job, your latest career, car, your house, your kids? What are you glorifying in? Because that is actually showing you what glorifies? And people look at it and they see what are the things you considered important. When, and it's interesting going back and thinking about London, when I was living in London and I wore that, that jersey, what was I glorifying in? I was glorifying in a, in a, in a bunch of guys and a bunch of drunkards really that could hit and a cricket ball over a fence. Wow, how wonderful is that? You know, how pathetic is that? How 
how stupid and how silly are the things we find glorious when we've got this wonderful God who died for us, who gave his very life for us, who sacrificed his life, whose hands were surrendered to cruel nails, who loves us so much he gave his life for us. And I choose the cricket team. It is foolish. We are called to take on the name of God. We are called Christians. We are called Christians for very one very simple reason. We take on Christ's name. And if you take on Christ's name, and this is one of the Ten Commandments, do not take the Lord's name in vain, which means do not take it on in emptiness. Do not take it on and just go, well, I'm a Christian, I'm going to go out and drink and do whatever I want. No. Taking on the Lord's name means taking on the family characteristics. What is the family characteristic? Humble self-sacrifice. That is the glory of God. That is what we are called on to live. We are to live for God's glory alone. For I resolved to know nothing whilst I was amongst you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. What does that mean? In your life, live out humble self-sacrifice. Take up thy cross and follow me. How many verses can I bring up that keep on talking about God's self-sacrifice for us? That is what God is calling us to do. Now, as I'm finishing up, I can't but finish up with a quote from Martin Luther since we're doing, you've been doing uh, the Reformation Solas. Here's what Martin Luther said. It is not sufficient for anyone and it does him no good to recognise God in his glory and majesty unless he recognises him in the humility and shame of the cross. Luther understood it. He got it. If you do not see God crucified, you do not see or understand God at all. God died for his people. God loves his people so much that he sacrificed himself on the cross. And he calls on us to glorify him by taking on his name and following him. Take up your cross and follow me. As you go out and as you think about these Reformation solas of faith alone, grace alone, scripture alone and Christ alone, know that they have one purpose and they point to one direction only, God's glory alone. Live your lives in humble self-sacrifice to proclaim the praise and glory of the God who died in our place for our sins. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your glorious son who died in our place for our sins. We know we are not worthy of that death, but out of your great love for us, you have given us your son so that we can live in a right relationship with you. Help us, Father, and grow us so that we take up our cross and follow him. May we live for the praise and glory of your Son and your Son alone. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, our Saviour. Amen.